And a very warm welcome back to Solidarity Breakfast. A left response to the major developments in capitalism. What they trade in is not wheat. They trade in famine. A little dose of revolutionary optimism. I think it's really important to sort of express solidarity globally. It really is a deal by corporations for corporations. The union forever defending our rights down with the black If you think the ABC's left wing, don't listen to this program. Solidarity Breakfast, 7.30 to 9am Saturdays, 3CR, 8.55am, streaming and 3CR digital, podcast or audio on demand. And of course, the website, solidaritybreakfast.org.au. Solidarity forever! Hi everyone, this is Annie for the last in our Solidarity Breakfast summer season. Thanks for listening in. In this program, we look at major issues that have been developing over the past year and will need to be dealt with in the future. The first is a local issue, the Collingwood Community Garden, running continuously for 40 years, providing the local community in a highly urbanised inner suburb with access to plots to grow produce. But the management committee of the adjoining Collingwood Children's Farm is trying to turf the community out, shut the gardens, all under the guise of a social enterprise model. We hear from Barry Han from the Fight Back Committee about what has happened. We go outside the Park Hotel in Carlton on Human Rights Day and hear Arnold Sable, author and refugee rights activist's powerful speech. We follow with the issue of extractivism and use the Lasnet's slogan that extractivism is not development. We hear from Edie Shepherd from Get Up about what is happening in the Northern Territory. We hear a voice from Ecuador where Australian mining companies are gathering like crows on a carcass. And we follow with Rocky App, a West Papuan speaker at a recent alternative COP26 event. In the last half hour, we explore AUKUS, the nuclear substeel, with the U- US and UK from a number of angles. You're listening to summer programming on 3CR Community Radio. Independent music, community info and special features throughout the summer. You are listening to the last in our Solidarity Breakfast summer season. Last year, the Collingwood Community Gardeners were shocked to discover that the management committee of the adjacent Collingwood Children's Farm had locked them out, citing safety issues. The gardeners, in good faith, investigated and gave the committee a plan for upgrading the safety with the assistance offered by the CFMEU, only to find that actually the lockout was just a tactic to gain control of the site for a social enterprise plan the children's farm management had cooked up. Barry Hand explains that the meeting held to formally hand the committee a petition calling for the reinstatement of the gardeners' right of entry to their plots. First, I want to say a huge thanks to everyone that signed the petition and that without this public campaign, I th- I'm confident that site would be uh, a bare, you know, devastated-looking bombsite because uh, that was the intention of the, uh, of the committee of management. Despite their recent statements, which have progressively softened it, so our position has remained uh, the same from the beginning. It is that uh, they should talk to the gardeners 
to work out how to solve the safety issues. We have no, no, no rejection of the safety report. We acknowledge as a report it needs to be addressed. Uh, we came up with a practical solution within a few days with support of Stephen Jolly, offer from the CFMEU. Uh, the safety report, in fact, had about seven items that, if you look at them, condensed down to about three, which is just remove the laceration uh, risks, remove the impalement risks, and smooth and widen the paths. That is what the report said needed to be done to make the site safe. Now, almost four months later, uh, the farm has failed to do anything on that, but it has used it as an excuse to pursue their own agenda, which is really a fundamental change. And I think what we've got here is a culture clash. It's a clash between bureaucracy and community. So the community gardens represent 42 years of the Yarra's community growing food in an informal, relaxed, happy space. And what's come along is a bureaucracy which wants to impose its vision over that, and, uh, and to do so, it's necessary to destroy what is there. So that's the fundamental argument here, and it's all masked in lots of uh, words around accessibility and safety and so on, but what they're doing is they're using this, at a, they're proposing a state of perfection in terms of all these bureaucratic rules, and the result is the exclusion of everyone from the use of the site. You know, the standard they're proposing far exceeds the, the farm itself. If they applied that to the farm, the farm would be shut down forever. And so here we are, four months later almost, uh, no, no time frame offered as to when we would get back in, and they're doubling down on the idea that the only way to let us back in is to completely change the site. Now, they've softened the words, it's now refurbishment. Originally, it was clear the site with heavy machinery. That statement was made. It's a direct quote from Nina Collins, chairman, chairperson of the committee, I think she is, or the president of the committee, uh, when they made the announcement of the closure. She said they'd been advised the only way to solve these issues was to clear the site and it could only be done with heavy machinery. And they keep backtracking on all of these things and that's because of the public support that we've had showing the, the disingenuous nature of their communications. So we met with them within days of, this, of the closure. We proposed a joint statement where they would, would jointly agree that we would address the safety issues immediately and we would engage in a consultation process with them about the future of the site. So we've never ruled out their vision of the site for the future, but what we've said is you cannot leave it unused for an indefinite period of time uh, you know, while that vision is, is carried out. And still in, in their response to the petition, and I encourage you to read it, it's all very vague. They talk about what they're going to do. It's going to be a community garden at some point. But, you know, right now it's a, it's a devastated site of weeds and it needs to be solved, right? So that's our position. Uh, we continue on. It's only through the support from the public community, uh, through the petitioners, through other public support, that we finally managed to get through to Lily D'Ambrosio's office. She, in turn, delegated resolution of this matter to DELP, Department of Environment, Water, Land, Water and Planning. And we have been in communication with a senior uh, DELP person who is facilitating meetings between us and the Committee of Management. So we've had two meetings so far. Uh, it's painfully slow process and the committee has been absolutely 
reluctant to make any concessions uh, whatsoever to their position, uh, but we are encouraged by the uh, what appears to be a pretty genuine approach from this senior DELP staff member who's overseen it, and he has said he is committed to have as many meetings as it takes to solve this matter. But we need to keep the pressure up and we need to keep pushing our case and ultimately the, the community management needs to be seen for the you know the, the failure of their administration of this, this bit of land over, over a long period of time. So uh, I guess I'm not sure how, how I'm going for time Giles, I know you had a time, I don't want to use up too much of the time but I just perhaps make one brief comment, you talked about plots being cleared for $25,000 this was mentioned by Nina Collins when she announced the closure and we've been able to piece together various bits of information so we don't definitively know what has happened here but our theory is that this could be the catalyst for this whole miserable exercise. So what happened was Angelo who'd been one of the original plotters for 40 odd years uh, went into aged care and gave up his plot. It was a double sized plot about 40 square meters and then the next thing you know in Farms last year's annual report that they had given that plot to two social enterprises, street and cultivating community. Now, if you look them up, you'll find their turnover combined is about $10 million a year and they receive about $2 million of public funding. Why did they farm need to give two plots, which normally should have been allocated to community members, to these businesses? Well, apparently they needed them to train people. No doubt we, we speculate that this would be some sort of publicly funded training program, so there would be money coming in from that. Uh, $24,000 was paid apparently to cultivating communities to do the work as a contractor. Uh, it was also stated in Nina's original closure uh, speech that cultivating communities was the contractor that advised them of the need to clear the site. So if you put all these things together, what's happening is this is taking a public asset the community garden, giving it to commercial enterprises uh, which involving tens of thousands of dollars, amounts of money which would have totally resolved all of the, the safety issues, but apparently these enterprises stated they couldn't use the plots for their training exercise because the surrounds were too dangerous. So we believe this was the catalyst for the original safety report and everything flows from that. So we have to ask, 40 square metres. The farm is what, 16 hectares. Could they not find 40 square metres of garden plot for these partner organisations to do their training program and leave the gardeners to the community? It's just outrageous. On top of that, over the last couple of years, every time a plot has become vacant, instead of allocating the people who've in good faith put their names on the waiting list, what do they do? They've reserved them. They firstly said they'd reserve them for communal plots, but they never found a community to use them. So there's about six plots that are allocated communal have never been used. And at the time of the closure, 20% of the plots were held by the farm, not allocated to the community and not used. So this is a complete failure of management. And you know this contrasts with their statements, which make out to be you know, extremely serious, responsible managers. Well, it, it's a nonsense. Coming up at the Nightcap, better late, running till 3am every Friday and Saturday 
featuring the best local and international bands and DJs, including Zeitgeist Freedom Energy Exchange, Gypsy Brown with Tando, Spasta with Adriana and Odd Mob, Domingo Latino Sundays with La Influencia and Calle Luna. Upcoming shows including Art vs. Science, ModCon, I Know Leopard and more. For info and tickets, head to thenightcat.com.au. A 3CR supporter. You're with Annie listening to the fourth and last in our Solidarity Breakfast summer season of programs. The federal government's shameful refugee policies, which incarcerate refugees like prisoners for years with options of keeping them indefinitely, are on constant show in the centre of Melbourne, where 35 Medivac refugees are being held at the Park Hotel. The Human Rights Day rally convened in Lincoln Square across the road recently uh, gave the opportunity for Arnold Zabel to give an impassioned speech. It follows with a song from a fellow speaker, Tariq, an Afghani, who remains on a protection visa to this day. On Human Rights Day, we are bearing witness to a brutal and ongoing injustice committed in our name against innocent people who are in the ninth year of their imprisonment. People who courageously sought a new life free of oppression for themselves and their families, their basic human rights, and instead have been shunted from prison to prison, from Christmas to Manus Island and Nauru, to prisons within prisons. And now, after all this time, some remain in prisons here in the Park Hotel in Carlton and in Mitre Prison in Broad Meadows and elsewhere. People who were medevac to Australia to be treated for wounds of both the mind and the body and instead have been driven to the point of madness. On Human Rights Day, as we hold our vigil, I wish to recall the names of the 13 men who have died in Australia's offshore prisons on Nauru and Manus for murder, medical neglect, suicide or accident people in the prime of their lives who died far from their families, who set out on dangerous journey with a dream of freedom and instead died in exile. Reza Baraki, Faisal Shigami, Hamid Kahazai, Hamid Samshiripur, Faisal Ishak Ahmed, Kamil Hussein, Rajiv Rajendra, Salim Tioni, Omid Masumali, Rakib Khan, Sayyid Ibrahim Hussein, Fahi Bos Karami, and Jahinga. In, in 2017, I asked the writer, poet, and journalist Fabrice Vichandi, then still in exile on Manus Island, about the deaths, and he posted this extraordinary lament for two of the men, Reza and Fahi Shigani. It is a lament of three mothers for their lost sons, including Beirut's mother, who all come from the same area in the mountains of Kurdistan. Beirut writes, My mother, Reza's mother, and Faisal's mother are crying together. 
Faisal's village is near Reza Barati. Their villages are beside a river and a high, high mountain. My home is near their homes. There is only a mountain between us, a mountain and a river between our homes. My mother climbed up the mountain today and went to Faisal's mother's home. My mother, Reza's mother and Faisal's mother are crying together. I heard Samari River is crying with them. Under Faisal's village is one of the most ancient and oldest cities in the world. It is called Sirwan. They are crying on the oldest city for Reza and Faisal. I heard that all of Kurdistan's beautiful mountains are crying. All of Sirwan is crying. Mountain, river, wild flowers. All of Sirwan is crying with our mothers. I hear the oldest songs the mothers are singing in Ilam City, Suwan and Kurdistan. I hear their voices crying from this manor's prison. I hear the oldest song from the mothers. It is called Moa. Moa is a song for brave sons. Faisal and Reza were brave sons. They fought for their lives with the Australian government and the dark ocean. When I was in Kurdistan, many times I climbed up that highest mountain. There are the oldest oak trees there. I hear the oak trees are crying too. My heart is so heavy because I heard the deepest sorrowful moor from my mother today. I have never heard a moor like this moor that raises faithfuls and my mother are singing. This is Kurdish culture. We are born by song, live by song, fight by song and die by song. I feel the deepest sorrow because of Faisal's death. He deserves the deepest more song. My heart is heavy because I am crying and listening to more for my best friend in a prison on the remotest island in the world. I always think about the more my mother will sing for me when I die. I thought that song would be sung in beautiful Kurdistan. I am sure Reza and Faisal thought like me, but their lives were taken in remote places, not in Kurdistan. They lost their lives because of injustice. They lost their lives in a foreign land. Who was there when their lives were taken? My mother, Reza's mother, and Faisal's mother are together singing the deepest moor. Later, I asked Beirut the following question. His extraordinary answer, despite it all, gives us hope and keeps our faith in humanity. I asked Beirut, you say that four years after leaving Iran, you feel yourself to be a stateless person and you belong to no country. Where do you belong now? How do you sense the world around you? Beirut answered, I always imagine the world map. I always imagine a tiny island and a prison in the tiny island. It's where I am at this moment. Three years ago, when the local people attacked our prison and killed a person and injured 100 people, the guards took us to a soccer ground outside the prison. That was the first time we had been out. They gathered 900 men on the soccer ground for a night. On that dark night, I was looking at the sky and I felt that there was no place in the world for me. They even took away my prison. I felt that I don't even belong to the earth and I was looking at the sky and imagining another planet. Three years since that night, I'm still imagining the world map. I'm still imagining a tiny island and a prison in that tiny island. 
but I'm still alive and I have changed my mind and I feel deeply that I belong to the earth. I belong to nature and I believe in solid ground. I think we are human and don't have any shelter but humanity. We have to trust in humanity and love humanity. I have had people from around the world and Australia sending messages to me, sharing their kindness with me. And I think that I belong to this world and I belong to the humans beyond the political borders. I am a free man. Yes, freedom. This is what we are here for. We stand alongside our brothers and sisters and we call for an end to this brutal, unjust and inhumane imprisonment. We call for freedom. Thank you. Uh, the meaning of the song is, um, I wish there should be no war in my country and I should not be forced to left, leave my homeland. I should stay in my homeland always. There should be no war in my country. So the, this is the, the main title of the song. Dilgir. Mm. Tani khurshid ra basta bazanjir Nawai ghurbatu hisi judai Batash me kashat jani musafir Batash me kashat jani musafir Hai Musafir Vai Musafir Vai Musafir Dilash me khas jang hargiz na me bod Bado shikas tufang hargiz na me bod3CR Community Radio, 8.55am. You are with Annie listening to the fourth and last in our Solidarity Breakfast summer season of programs. A friend of mine said the other day that they no longer use the term climate change, only climate emergency will do. The next three items are about this climate emergency, but from the point of view of the extractivist industries and what is at stake for the earth and local communities if they are allowed their delusional way of destruction. 
Edie Shepard from Get Up is followed by Carlos Soray in Ecuador and Rocky Api from West Papua finishes it off. To kick off the segment, a little song from Rowan White from the Greenleaf Performance Night. I went down to the mining conference. I think plagiarism is a bit harsh. I, I correct songs. Now, this one is a chorus, and you're welcome to sing along. I'm going to teach it to you now. You can't always dig what you want. You can't always dig what you want. You can't always dig what you want. And I'll do the, I'll do the, the other bit, okay, because it's written down and it's complicated. Oh, the mining conference, by the way, some of you might have been to. I went, I wasn't really invited. It was called iMark. <laughs> I went down to the mining conference to talk to these men in their suits. I said, hey, you, thanks for all the product, but why are you all in cahoots? Your turn. You can't always dig what you want. You can't always dig what you want. You can't always dig what you want. And if you try too hard, you just might find, you just might find, it looks like your greed. I've heard folks who've lived on the country for thousands and thousands of years. I don't think we can keep on going like this. They know it will all end in tears. Your go. You can't always dig what you want. You can't always dig what you want. You can't always dig what you want. And if you try too hard, you just might find, you just might find, it looks like your greed. I asked my professor of climate, how much of this stuff can we burn? She said, I, I've been saying forever, but some people, they never learn. I went down to the demonstration. My friends got their share of abuse. The pundits, they spun dirty headlines. Still, I know there is no excuse. You can't always dig what you want. 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 One more time, loud. You can't always dig what you want. 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 Thank you. 
the main campaigns that I we put heaps of time and energy and effort into in terms of like organizing capacity building resource and that sort of stuff um, is fracking in the Northern Territory. So at the moment, oil and gas corporations have licenses over 70% of the Northern Territory, which is an unbelievable amount of like of country and an unbelievable amount of landmass. Um, and for over 10 years, traditional owners ride across the territory. So the Beetaloo Basin in particular is um, bigger than Sydney. Like this one area is bigger than Sydney. Um, and we have a particular co- corporation that has a license that is literally twice the size of Tasmania, which is just like an unbelievable amount of space. But for 10 years, traditional owners have been saying, no, we don't want this. You have no consent. There is no free prior and informed consent. Um, and we have conservative governments from both major parties, I would argue they're both conservative, um, who, as I'm sure people are probably like fairly across, are pretty wedded to gas as an idea. But there's a couple of things in particular. I don't campaign on the climate. I campaign on consent, right? Um, And traditional owners across the NT have repeatedly and persistently for 10 years said no because they were not told of what the process would take, which is actually like it's quite a violent process. They drill over two kilometres into the earth and pump it full of chemicals that have been known to cause cancer to basically explode the rock underground to suck out gas. Um, and the the particularly scary thing about the Northern Territory is it's quite a dry place, right? It's pretty dry. Um, so 90% of the territory re- like relies on underground bore water and it's one big aquifer. And if they drill down and there's one spill, that's it for water across the territory. Um, without water, there is no survival. Like it's it's actually mind-boggling that this is something that anyone is persisting with in a process that has been banned in multiple places, including states here on this continent, um, has been banned as a process because it's so dangerous. Um, so that's one of the things I work on. And the other major campaign that I work on is around cultural heritage. Um, folks probably saw last year the the disaster that was Jukun Gorge, the absolute fucking tragedy um, of a 46,000-year-old sacred site being blown up for expediency by Rio Tinto. Um, and that really cracked open a conversation that that we haven't we haven't had as a nation in a very, very long time. Mm. I'd say probably not not since the epic land rights movements that my family were part of in the 60s and 70s. So I kind of, I consider this work a continuation of that legacy. Um, but what happened in WA, as appalling and as shocking as it is, is completely legal and happens literally everywhere across this continent on a daily basis. Um, there's some, everything sits with ministerial discretion. So whether it's the WA legislation, so... Um, God, Ben Wyatt, that's his name, signed off the explosion of Rio Tinto without consulting traditional owners. In New South Wales, where my mob are from, Wiradjuri mob, there have been 700 applications to stop the destruction of, over 700 applications to stop the destruction of sacred sites, and five have been approved. That Mm. is the scale of destruction of country and culture. And what I will say about that is that without country and with our site, without our sites, we we aren't Aboriginal people. Our culture and our law and our custom all comes from that place that we are from. Ben White and WA, they're related. 
Um, but Ben White's from the AL page. Sorry, just reading from the chat. Um, so the protection and the preservation of, of country is, is pretty existential as blackfellas. So that's kind of, that's the space that I work in as well as providing, um, support to families who are running campaigns around Aboriginal deaths in custody. We're learning just how horrible things are for First Nations communities in Western New South Wales, Will Kenya and other towns out that, that way. To what extent are the are similar communities in, uh, say, uh, uh, Queensland and Northern Territory uh, learning how to prepare for the inadequacies, if you like, of government bureaucratic support for dealing with the pandemic? Uh, Edie, your reflections on this? So... I, through my dad's side, I'm Wiradjuri, um, which means that I, my ancestral territories, my family are in Western New South Wales, particularly in Dubbo. Um, so I'm feeling this on like a range of levels, including the fact that the first Aboriginal person to pass because of COVID is from my community. Like it's been a very big week. Um, I think that what is happening in Western New South Wales is an extension of the frontier wars. This feels like an act of genocide and I don't want to sound like I'm like I'm really over the top, but 18 months ago when our communities across Australia wrote to Ken White, wrote to the government, were like, okay, this is going to be a disaster when it gets in. Can we have beds? Can we have ventilators? Can we have adequate housing? They sent children-sized body bags to a community in the Kimberley. That was the government's response to help at the outbreak of this pandemic. Child-sized body bags. It is very difficult to try to understand this in any other way other than an act of state-sanctioned violence when that's the response. And what we've seen over the last week, as well as the health service out in Wilcannia, wrote a very like wrote very similar correspondence to Ken Wyatt 18 months ago. And yet here we are. We have communities who are who have 20 people in a two-bedroom house. How do you isolate? They're isolating in tents. It's they're predicting now that one in five Aboriginal people have COVID out there, which is mm. which is phenomenal. Um, and I think that there's there's a lot of roles that we can play in this. But one of the one of the things that I would I would ask everyone listening to this is actually like. There's a lot of noise happening at the moment, right? Everyone's in lockdown. It's hard to get a vaccine. I don't know how I managed to get fully vaccinated, but thank God for that. Um, there's a lot of noise happening at the moment, and it's really, really easy to drown out the fact that there is an oppressed, marginalised group of people who are absolutely staring down the barrel of being decimated right now in Western New South Wales. We're talking about what is it going to take to lock down? No, what is it going to take for those people to survive this? And it's not living in tents and it's not like people are celebrating because they got given the material so that they could hunt roo, so that they could eat out there because there is no food in the community. That's not something to celebrate. It's not something to celebrate that they've sent 20 camper vans out to Western New South Wales. It is a tragedy and a crime that the housing doesn't exist already. Um, and we need, like, we can't, we can't shift the spotlight off this. We can't on any way, shape or form, because this government will take any excuse that it can 
to bait and switch and pivot away to anything that's not to do with our mob. Um, We need to be loud about it. And I need people to be as angry as I am. to invite our first speaker. He's uh, Carlos Sorrilla. He's at the moment uh, in Ecuador, but I will pass it to Liz. Hi, um, yeah, so um, yeah, Carlos, uh, we're working in solidarity with Carlos um, and a few other people in particularly the Northwest of Ecuador. because we have um, multiple Australian companies mining, they're co- um, it will exp- exploring at this point um, in the area, which Carlos will explain um, is uh, one of the most biodiverse regions in the world. It's got um, you know, the, indig- the indigenous lands of the Awa people. It's um, got communities, it's got source water areas, and we've got BHP, we've got Sol Gold, um, uh, Hancock Prospecting or uh, if, if, um, Han Ryan, owned by Gina Reinhardt. Um, and a total of across Ecuador, we've got about um, of about 3 million hectares of Ecuador that are currently under mining concessions from multinational companies all over the world. Um, about where we at last count, which was three years ago, so this will be desperately out of date now. The mining um, registry in Ecuador, the cadastro is being updated all the time, but about 36% were Australian companies um, in Ecuador. So it's quite a serious problem. Um, and Carlos is has been an anti-mining activist for um, decades, which he will explain. I'll hand it over to you, Carlos. Yep. Well, thank you for the invitation, for the chance to let other people know what's going on in not only our region, but Latin America in general. Ecuador is just a reflection of what's going on all over uh, this beautiful continent. Yeah, I've been involved in anti-mining since uh, 1995, when the Japanese came in to try and open a copper mine and they were driven out by the communities. And then the Canadians came in 2004 and they were driven out by the communities in 2009. In 2012, the government signed a deal with Chile uh, to develop the mine with Codelco, the world's largest copper producer. And they couldn't go in being the nice guys. So they brought in police and military and they installed themselves in primary cloud forest. And the way they go about trying to buy leaders and trying to get the social license happens, it's pretty much the same everywhere. If uh, they try to be nice, to play the, the role of the nice guys, giving people and offering things, roads, computers for schools, medicines for the clinics, They'll do anything to get the the approval. And it usually works. Money works in most cases. In our case, because of the long struggle, it was harder for the mining companies. That's why they had to use the police and military. And they had the same thing happened north of us in the the same province, not too long ago with the uh, Hendrang, well, with Hancock subsidiary here, they couldn't go in 
the nice way. So the government helped them and 500 police and military escorted them to their mining site. So this is becoming a norm in Ecuador. There's a lot of opposition and the companies threatened to take Ecuador to the international tribunals if they are not allowed to work on their mining concessions. And that's a, an interesting aspect of mining, transnational mining companies, is that these governments sign bilateral trade agreements or investment protection agreements. And then the, the, the countries feel obligated to support transnational mining no matter what the cost. Gross human rights abuse, uh, despoiling primary cloud forests, in our case, they found copper in this beautiful primary cloud forest region, very steep. Uh, there's hundreds of species facing ex extinction. And you didn't, you heard me right, hundreds of species facing extinction in this area. It rains uh, between three and five meters. It's, it's a very, very challenging environment. And it will be one of the most devastating mining projects in the world because of the ecological and geological conditions of the area. But it, it has become, becoming a modus operandi where the mining companies first try to go the peaceful way. That doesn't work out a lot. And it, they eventually demand that the government supports them. In our case, I mentioned it was copper, but it's the same, it could be gold, the two most sought after commodities right now in Ecuador. Uh, Chile is lithium, Argentina, copper, gold, and lithium. In, in our case, it's mostly copper and gold. And yeah, it, 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 the title of the, uh, the talk was interesting, the uh, extractivism is not development. It would be nice in a, in a rational world, we would stop talking about development and start talking about well-being. Because when people, they associate development or, or wealth to monetary or material wealth, which is only one type of wealth. And un, unless we get those values right, unless we realize that there are many, many kinds of wealth, social, cultural wealth, environmental wealth, the wealth of the land, the, the fertility of the land, for example, the biodiversity, those are all wealth that the companies and the government never, never take into account when they, when they permit all these mining projects. One of the things that we've been doing in the Italian, we've been working, uh, it'll be soon 27 years, is to try and educate the people, make them aware of these other types of wealth and what really, what you sacrifice when you allow large-scale mining into your area. You lose, you destroy all this other capital, all this other wealth, just to focus on what's the wealth below the ground. And the wealth above the ground is what we need to really focus on. And it's very difficult, as uh, if some of your activists know, Money is a very strong, a terrific, uh, powerful pool, tool for the mining companies. And then the idea of what development is, 
people think, a lot of people think development, of course, is having a car, high paying job. They don't really think about having a peaceful society and having rivers that you can swim in and not worry about being sick or fishing from a river and knowing that it's healthy food, growing organic food. That type of, that's what I mean, that type of well-being doesn't compute into these extractive projects. And one of the things that we all can do is trying to emphasize that the wealth above the ground is much greater than the wealth underground. And I, I'd, I'd like to hear some of the stories uh, from your corners of the world about how you confront this idea of development because it is so entrenched and it's so dominant. It's very, very difficult to overcome. And so this is what, what's happening now. Where I live in Intan, my house and my forest is concession to BHP. My whole community is concession to BHP and about 90% of this beautiful watershed. There was no, at all, no consultation neither with the communities or the local governments. So BHP just went, goes in there and they tried to develop the mine. They were, their presence was firmly rejected two years ago. And today I got a phone call about a half hour ago, a friend of mine saying that there's some people uh, asking where they could set up a camp, a mining camp. It could be BHP, but something to highlight is that these companies have money and they have time and they'll just try and wear you down over and over again. And this is what you fight against. This distractive industry is very powerful. In our area, there's really no indigenous communities. There's campesinos communities, which have less rights than indigenous communities. So the only thing that counts here is awareness. And this is what's kept mining companies. There's no open pit mines. There's no large scale mines where we are. We managed to stop it for 26 and a half years. Codelco's in there now. They did exploration, but they, they have not been able to go forward with exploitation. And if, uh, if, if they do go ahead, it will be one of those most devastating mining projects in the world. And so I'd like to uh, count on your support whenever possible, because we will definitely need it, seeing who we're up against. I'm gonna leave it now and see if people would like to ask questions, because I could go on, it's such a long story, you know. But I don't know, Liz, should I highlight something that might be interesting? Um. Yeah, I think, I mean, just maybe in terms of um, the, the human rights abuses, not, not so much, well, that's probably slightly north of Intag as the, the Hanreen concessions. Um, and I guess, oh, so that's, you know, we're starting to get human rights stuff, but also, um, yeah, I guess, as you say, there's so many different stories, isn't there? And, and there was also the massive amount of, uh, can you talk just a couple of minutes about the community mobilization that you've done already and the Intag Santuario de Vida? Right. 
Yeah, mining countries like these are accompanied by human rights abuses. Just the fact that they they had to rely on hundreds of police to go into Coleco to go into its concession in 2014. They occupied the whole area, the, not just the mining site, but the, the whole Intag area was occupied. The police were stopping buses to, from going in, which is completely illegal. The police set up a camp right in the, the community that was most actively against uh, the mining company. And so human rights, violence and, and mining and large-scale mining go hand in hand. So that's, we have to be clear about that. In Buenos Aires, it had the same formula in Buenos Aires. The mining companies tries to bribe their way in to offer things that doesn't work. Eventually, in, in my case, in our case, we received death threats. And in, in my case particular too, mining companies set up a false lawsuit to get me arrested. And we, I, I, my house was invaded by 19 police at six o'clock in the morning one day. So all these human rights abuses accompany mining projects. When you have a government that's so complicit, you really don't, where can you turn to if the government's violating, if they're the ones that are violating your right? In Buenos Aires, the uh, Hancock subsidiary, subsidiary couldn't access the mining concession. They pressured the government, probably by uh, threatening to sue them, to take them to the international tribunal. And finally, the government relented and they sent in 500 police and military to escort the mining company to the mining concession. What's happening is in the future, all these mining sites will be militarized. There's so much opposition that's almost an inevitable outcome. Our next testimony comes from the Asia-Pacific region, from Raki Up. Raki is part of the Free West Papua campaign, which was founded by the independence leader, Benny Wenda, and exists to raise awareness about the genocide and ecocide in West Papua. Their agenda is to create international awareness and to find support for the right to self-determination for West Papua. Raki is a spokesperson for the Free West Papua campaign as a voice for indigenous Papuans. And uh, Raki, welcome to the People's Health Hearing, and we look forward to hearing to, uh, your testimony. Yes, but thank you so much um, for the introducing. And first of all, um, really inspired by the previous speakers um, uh, with their stories and insights they gave to me. And I want to thank uh, the People's Health Hearing and all the organizations and partners who organized this, uh, because my slogan my slogan, system change by story change. And I'm gonna share, share you my personal story, how I became the person I am today, which is uh, the indigenous climate change activist, uh, freedom fighter, a spokesperson of our campaign. And to kick off my presentation, I want all the participants um, to imagine that world's largest gold mine is located uh, nearby your home, your city, or your village. And that this world's largest gold mine is also the world's second largest copper mine. And that because of these activities of this extractive industry, 
um, the rivers which you and your people have used for many thousands of years for fishing, for water, and for every you know, daily activity have been polluted, have been poisoned due to um, uh, this uh, extractive industry's uh, toxic waste. And because their activities are making so much profit, you and your family have been forced to go away because they wanted to use your land, the land where you have lived, where your house is standing for hundreds of generations long to make more profit, to make more mining activities. Because you don't, don't like that, and the villagers as well, you go and protest. So this corporation ask an army in a neighboring country to support them, they pay them, and they force all of you with violence to get away from your land. Many people of your village, of your family have been murdered. And in the last 60 years, imagine, not 100 years ago, but the last 60 years, more than one third of your population have been murdered. And an anthropologist who made music an anthropologist who was a musician as well, who made music about what is happening in these villages against their, his people, was murdered. His family had to forced, was forced to left the country. This sounds like a far away show from, you know, from the history, but unfortunately, it is not a fantasy story. This is the story of the indigenous peoples of West Papua. This is my personal story because the anthropologist and the musician was my father, Arnold Up. And me and my mom, three brothers, had to fled West Papua and we arrived in the Netherlands where I was just a boy. So from a political refugee from West Papua after Indonesian military assassinated my father four months before I was born, I came to the Netherlands and I joined the Dutch army because I thought that was the way to contribute to peace and justice and human rights. How I was young and naive, now I understand the political dynamics behind this militarism, which also is a huge contributor to the climate crisis we see today. So this is my story with showcase West Papua. For those who doesn't know where West Papua is, it's right above Australia, the island of New Guinea, and it's the western half of the island of New Guinea right there. And I'm gonna zoom in. This is the island split in two. The eastern half is the uh, Papua New Guinea, the independent nation of Papua New Guinea. In the western half is West Papua, which unfortunately is um, um, uh, a province of the Indonesia we know today. So what went wrong? First, we, was, we were a colony of the Netherlands. They prepared the West Papuans to an independent nation. They gave the West Papuans the morning stuff like they, we had an army, we had a first government in the early 60s until the United States came in and forced the Dutch to hand over West Papua to the Indonesia we know today. And this was the reality which started from that moment on. After a so-called referendum in 1969, two years before, a U.S. corporate gold mine, the world's largest copper mine, second largest, world's largest gold mine, second largest copper mine, located in the heart of West Papua destroyed the environment and uh, violated a lot of human rights. Not much later, we got BP coming in as well, clearing uh, rainforest. And before that, obviously, indigenous peoples lived there for more than hundreds, if not thousands of years in balance with nature. 
And because more and more companies saw this huge rainforest and all these resources, palm oil companies came in to plant what they do, palm oils, um, for all the products here in the West and left behind, you know, this kind of landscapes for the indigenous communities in West Papua. And these are the images which West Papuans have been confronted, not images, the violence committed by, you know, uh, colonial Indonesian forces against indigenous Papuans who lived there for more than 40,000 of year in balance with the nature. So these companies are paying directly to the occupation, to the violence committed by Indonesian military and basically allowing them to do that. And these are the images, unfortunately, I have to see to make you feel how, how horrible the situation in West Papua is. My father's story, as I mentioned, is just one of the hundreds of thousands of stories. Confirm NGOs uh, reports more than 500,000 indigenous West Papuans have lost their lives the last 60 years due to Indonesian colonization, supported by the Western governments and their uh, extractive industries. So how is this story linked to the climate crisis? This is why I am here in Glasgow. Because how are we going to stop the climate crisis if we don't know what is happening on the front line? So West Papua is part of the world's largest tropical island, housing one of the unique, uh, most unique land to marine biodiversity. So the narrative of a lot of uh, environmental organizations are, you know, protecting the forest, protecting animals. Yes, of course, we support that. But if they cared about the lives of indigenous peoples and protected and campaigned for their rights, these animals and trees were still there. It's that simple. We need a new narrative. And that's why I'm here with our campaign. Because for us, it's about human lives. It's about our culture disappearing. And we are the best protectors of world's largest tropical island, housing the second slash third largest rainforest in the world. That is what happens. And these are the reports. Don't bother, just let them die about what is happening in West Papua. And why is our story so fundamental for those who want to fight climate change? Indigenous perspective on climate change which showcase West Papua. This is one of the outcomes of the United Nations panel, uh, Intergovernmental Panel on Climate Change. Although indigenous peoples constitute less than 5% of the world's population, they safeguarded 80% of world's remaining biodiversity. Thereby, they play an important role in the, the recent biodiversity. At the same time, more than 96% of all deforestation in the world happens on the same indigenous lands due to coal, mining, fossil fuels, and so on, and so on. So these two numbers basically show us the way out, out of the climate crisis. It's the most effective, most just, and cheapest climate solution there is. Protect the lives of indigenous peoples and the frontline communities who feels the effect of these extractive industries. So yes, nature.com described the uniqueness of the island of New Guinea. So when we understand what is happening in New Guinea and what, what happens in Nigeria to the Ogoni people, what's happening in the Amazon and much more communities around the world, we can understand the root causes where the climate crisis started and the structures which have created that. That is basically what the science is, is telling us. And the same United Nations are saying that ensuring the collective rights of indigenous peoples to land, territories, and resources, not only for their well-being, but also for addressing some of the most pressing global challenges, such as climate change and environmental degradation. So the solution is very clear. But at the same time, we see 
a lot of silence in the global north, in the ma mainstream media, at environmental organization, bringing forward the wrong narrative. And that's why I believe in the slogan, system change by story change. How is it possible that I have to educate Dutch environmental organizations or even WWF about what is happening on world's largest tropical island? You should know that and you should facilitate our voice. If you did that 50 years ago, we didn't have a genocide nor an ecocide in West Papua. So how is it possible that these fundamental organizations, which should be our first ally, are still pitching the wrong story? And politicians here in COP saying that, you know, cheering about, you know, ending deforestation in, by 2030, you know, we, we sh of course we should support that. How are they going to do that without having the best preservers, protectors of these environments, which are the indigenous peoples uh, on, on the table? Without underlining protecting the rights of indigenous peoples is the best solution to protect deforestation. That's exactly what we need to, you know, underline. We should bring that forward. That these are greenwash stocks about what is happening here in COP. So, but we have a way out because the world is silenced. We educated the world in the last 10 years under the leadership of His Excellency Benny Wenda. And we've created a lot of momentum by building bridges with different movements, also educating environmental organizations about the indigenous perspective and the role of indigenous peoples in preserving biodiversity and forest. So we built alliances with grassroots movements, with ENGOs, with politicians, with mainstream media to educate them about what is happening in West Papua. We've lobbied in the Pacific across the world. We become a member within the Melanesian Spearhead Group. And now we also got um, more than 2 million indigenous West Papuans supporting our cause and our campaign. So we bought, built up a huge momentum, understanding that we live without freedom, having very little resources we have created this, ch this chains of hope and optimism. So now we got more than 80 countries um, in the world demanding a United Nations human rights facts findings to uh, mission to West Papua, which is a huge diplomatic win for our campaign and our indigenous government in waiting uh, because Indonesia is still not allowing them uh, to, to, to do their you know, observing. But this is what, why we're here in Glasgow. We've launched the Green State Vision this week Fulfilling in the words of the United Nations themselves and, and the world leaders saying that indigenous peoples play an important role. Yes, indeed. So we envision this. You can visit it yourself at greenstatevision.info. And while we have challenged all these world leaders that you cannot lead the way, we know how to manage pristine land. We know how to manage world's largest biodiversity hotspot. And we are willing to lead. We are no victims. We are climate leaders. Thank you so, so much. This was my presentation. with Annie listening to the fourth and last in our Solidarity Breakfast summer season of programs. To finish the summer season of Solidarity Breakfast, we are going to explore AUKUS, the nuclear subs deal with the UK and US from a number of angles. First up, we hear from Dave Sweeney from the Conservation Foundation. Shortly after AUKUS was announced, the, uh, the Chief of Navy, Vice Admiral Michael Noonan, circulated a video comment to the ADF, in particular to the RAN. 
And in it, he spoke and he said that the AUKUS will shape the direction of our Navy forevermore and will no doubt change the shape of our nation. Now, the concern from an environmental and ecological perspective is that the, the change in that shape of our nation is one that we don't want and is one that is unhelpful. Our concern is that AUKUS is a stepping stone uh, to a domestic nuclear industry. We're concerned about the Trojan horse dimensions of the AUKUS plan and what better vessel to introduce an idea under the radar than a submarine. There are three key areas of concern that I want to touch on tonight. But I want to talk about pressures for an increase in domestic nuclear power, an increased pressure and expectation that Australia hosts radioactive waste, and the environmental impacts of nuclear submarines on our oceans, our ports, our coastal waters, our ports and port communities and public health. Now, for many of you, it's no surprise to see the domestic nuclear power argument come around. It's like a, a fast returning comet. It comes around, it shines bright, it disappears, and then it comes back. Like some of you will recall a dozen years ago, John Howard and Ziggy Swakowski talking about the need for 20 reactors by 2050. Uh, in the middle of last decade, there was a Royal Commission in South Australia into expanding the nuclear industry. Since 2018, there has been oppressed by conservative political forces, Keith Pitt in Canberra, Mark Latham in New South Wales and the Liberal Democrats in Victoria that's seen parliamentary inquiries into repealing state and federal prohibitions on nuclear technology in Australia. So there's nothing new here and these have on economic grounds, social licence grounds and many other ways been batted out of court each time it's come up. But there is an extra level of reanimation and swagger about pro-nuclear uh, advocates since the AUKUS announcement. We've seen Matt Canavan and Barnaby Joyce and other federal politicians out. We've seen the Mineral Council of Australia talking up small modular reactors. It doesn't matter that they don't exist in the real world. Apparently they're the saviour and the MCA is spending a lot of money and time spruiking that. We've seen polls in the Australian saying that support grows for nuclear power, even though the number of respondents that responded for a position of for or against the majority were against. So if you put that body of momentum together with the forthcoming climate conference of parties, which starts in Glasgow on November the 1st, you can see that AUKUS is fueling a push for domestic civil nuclear power and nuclear industry. So we're concerned, environment groups and others, that a pathway to nuclear powered subs could become a river of public cash for nuclear subsidies. We're also concerned about what this means for radioactive waste. Currently, some of you will be aware of this, some not, but currently the federal government is looking to locate Australia's first dedicated national radioactive waste facility near a town called Kimber, west of Wyala in regional South Australia. Now, it's a highly politicised and deeply flawed plan. It's opposed by many in the, in the local community, especially grain growers, grain producers in the Eyre Peninsula and the bungalow traditional owners. And the bungalow Aboriginal people were explicitly excluded from a community ballot that was meant to measure community sentiment about this waste proposal. Um, the bungalow were also had the indignity uh, of being 
explicitly attempted to have any right for procedural review or legal challenge to the site removed from the enabling legislation by Minister Keith Pitt, the minister who today wants to open public cash to coal industry. So the Kimber proposal is contested. The issue is set to grow over the coming months. And I'd ask you, this is a gathering of really informed, influential, significant people, connected people who make a difference in this country. I'd ask you to keep your eyes and ears open for this one because assistance will be needed as this goes on. But many of us are concerned that this AUKUS push will could see the Kimber proposal more from a suboptimal waste management plan to a submarine waste facility. Now, it's important in order to keep going to always find something positive in a situation. One positive is that people are talking about this, not rolling over, talking about this and talking about the wider nuclear industry. Another positive, and it's an important one, is that AUKUS shows that sovereign risk cannot ever be used credibly again by any Australian politician who wants to justify ecologically destructive behaviour. Australia has just torn up a $90 billion contract at the highest level of security. And we get, we hear environmentalists time and time again, are oh, not possible, sovereign risk, sends the wrong signals, compensation claims, well, that's out the window. And that's one positive of this very not positive thing. The third area of concern I want to flag tonight is to capture or just touch on some of the many unknowns of AUKUS without getting too rumspelt about it all. But there are many things that we do not know. Along with waste management and nuclear stewardship, as it's called, we don't know the extent of the impacts around planning, emergency and incident response capacity, public and environmental health impacts that this plan poses to our seas, our waters and our peoples. Um, nuclear subs sink, nuclear subs have accidents, they catch fire, nine have sunk and not in combat. And nuclear subs have limited containment and safety mechanisms compared to terrestrial ones. And we're well aware that terrestrial ones have proven risky and unreliable and nautical ones are far less in their capacity. Hold it to those three points of Trojan horse for a domestic nuclear industry, increased pressure to host radioactive waste, and a plethora of increasing and unnecessary and very real, not quantified, risks that this poses to our people and in our environment. Uh, it's a profound escalation. People are very true when they say it might take a lot of time, but it might take a lot of time to roll out the absolute worst. But a journey starts with a direction. And if we choose to go down road AUKUS, it's not the road that this country needs to go, wants to go, or the world needs, or that we, as citizens, not clients or customers, citizens of this nation, want to be part of. You with Annie on Solidarity Breakfast, we're looking at AUKUS, the nuclear sub-deal foisted upon us by the PM as we were coming out of COVID. Clinton Fernandez, academic and former military man, casts his eye over the issue. I'm about to say is already on the website of arena.org.au. I'll begin with the politics of the SPACT, known as AUKUS. Uh, the Prime Minister announced it as a forever partnership. He used that phrase 10 times uh, in the one press conference. <clears throat> Uh, the announcement has had an effect <clears throat> at the political level. Uh, an opinion poll soon after found that 57% of the public approve of the pact. 90% uh, of Liberal National Party voters approve, but Labour voters are split. 53% disapprove, 47% approve. 
which means that the government now has a national security wedge against the opposition. And the looming election will not just be about the response to the pandemic or the bushfires, but about which side can be trusted on national security. Uh, public support for, for the PAC shouldn't come as any surprise because opinion polls have, strong, have long shown uh, strong support for the alliance with the United States. Uh, and these opinion polls cannot be dismissed as aberrations. Uh, if there is to be a credible uh, anti-war uh, movement, it has to be based uh, on what the public regards as reasonable. To that end, I want to say that submarines, conventional submarines, uh, constitute a rare and vital capability uh, for a maritime nation like Australia. Uh, they raise the costs for any adversary contemplating hostile action. Anti-submarine warfare, uh, at which Australia is also adept, requires costly cutting-edge capabilities uh, and is one of the most complex warfare disciplines to master. Submarines are expensive, but the cost to an adversary uh, of countering them is much more expensive. Submarines give Australia a strategic weight that no other defence force asset or combination of assets has. If we are to call for an independent Australian foreign policy and, and a military that is armed but neutral, that focuses on defence, not offence, then that military and those calls must presume possession of capabilities such as submarine warfare and anti-submarine warfare. The capabilities cannot be turned on quickly. They require years of investment in personnel and equipment. And so for that reason, even if down the road it is possible to adopt a policy of armed independence, submarines and anti-submarine warfare assets will be a critical part of it. But I want to distinguish conventional submarines, which are relevant for the defense of Australia, from nuclear-powered submarines, which are not. Nuclear-powered submarines give you a range uh, and, and a submersion and a, and, and a speed, which allows them to operate far from home, uh, in particular for our, in our context in the waters of the South China Sea. And uh, some of the submarines that are being discussed, the Virginia-class submarine, for example, have at least 35 Tomahawk missile uh, uh, firing points in the, uh, in the, in the, in the midsection. Uh, they allow you to overwhelm uh, an enemy's land defenses. So these submarines, uh, if we're getting Virginia-class, are not submarines to collect intelligence. They are not uh, to, to, to hunt other submarines or to destroy enemy shipping. They are there to attack another country's coastal defenses. They are offensive. What exactly is the purpose of all this, however? Uh, and here I want to uh, uh, draw your attention to a TV show, a comedy called Utopia. Uh, in this show, there is a satirical point about defense policy saying, well, we are, we are defending our trade from China, but China is a major trading partner. And so how can we be protecting our trade with China from China? The whole thing is absurd. Well, that clip has been widely circulated and perhaps uh, you know, even funny, but it's utterly misinformed. Australian strategic planners already know that it's absurd to protect trade with China from China. That's not what they're trying to do. In the real world, what they are trying to do is, is insist that military and intelligence activities can be conducted in another country's exclusive economic zone. Exclusive economic zones were established in the United Nations Convention on the Law of the Sea uh, in 1982. The United States is the only maritime power not to recognize, not to, not to ratify uh, the Law of the Sea Convention, but it does act in accordance with it anyway. Uh, it refers to, uh, the exclusive economic zones refer to waters that extend 200 nautical miles from a country's shore. The United States says that it has the right to conduct military and intelligence collection activities within any country's exclusive economic zone and can do so as close as, as 12 nautical miles from the coast. 
And it also accepts the right of other countries to do this inside its own exclusive economic zone. During the Cold War, the United States did not interfere with Soviet ships, bombers, or surveillance aircraft that came in close to its airspace. China says that it respects freedom of navigation, but it doesn't respect the right of foreign governments to conduct military and intelligence collecting activities. So this is the key question. Should, uh, uh, does a, a, a country have the right to conduct military activities in another country's exclusive economic zone? In fact, if you look at Indonesia, the Philippines, and India, consider their geographies, their shape, and where they are in relation to the ocean, they all agree with China's version, uh, China's concept of the EZ. Very recently, in April this year, India protested strongly when the United States uh, uh, conducted its own freedom of navigation operations inside India's exclusive economic zone. Uh, Article 301 of the Law of the Sea Convention is called Peaceful Use of the Sea, and it states that uh, the threat or use of force cannot be used uh, inconsistent with the principles of international law in the United Nations Charter. The United States knows that if China's concept of exclusive economic zone rights, namely no foreign uh, military activities in its zone, if that concept were to be widely accepted around the world, the United States would not just lose the ability to project force in China, near China. It would lose the ability to project force in the Middle East, in the Persian Gulf, in the Red Sea. And that would uh, uh, mean that we'd have to conduct operations from 200 miles offshore. That reduces the power and the reach of US intimidatory force. That is why uh, the tensions in the South China Sea over the exclusive economic zone are going on. It has nothing to do with freedom of navigation. It is about whether military activities can be conducted near another country's shore. This is surely uh, a situation that calls for international diplomacy rather than threats of force, uh, the deployment of, of armadas uh, and so on into another country's zone. This question is important and must be asked not only inside parliament, but on the streets. What is the purpose uh, of these freedom of navigation operations? Are we doing it in order to protect shipping? And the answer to that is no. Or are we doing it to protect the United States' ability to project force anywhere around the world? 30% of the uh, of the world's oceans are actually e exclusive economic zones of other countries. That is what is at stake here. Um, the, there are other, other aspects about the deal, uh, and that is that uh, um, the, the, the policy planners in Australia know that it is a dangerous situation. That is not their concern. They already know that this is, a, uh, this is going to be dangerous. Their biggest concern is that some other country in the region might be more relevant and more effective uh, and more reliable for the United States, and the United States would protect, would choose it over Australia. Speaking truth to power, to tell the people in power that this is what you're doing is dangerous, is useless. They already know this. Policy planners do not need a lesson in that. Uh, what they have to be forced to answer, however, is are we in fact protecting the United States' ability to project power globally? rather than shipping or the defence of Australia. Thank you very much. In our final look at AUKUS for today, we hear from a person from the Pacific, one of the cherished neighbours from Morrison's speech announcing AUKUS. So now we have uh, Maria Timon Shifang. Uh, she is the Pacific Outreach Officer at the Edmund Rice Centre, Pacific Calling Partnership in Sydney, Australia. Maria? Merry greetings to you all. I'm grateful for the invitation to speak. I too recognize the category people owners of this territory. However, I'm a climate 
advocates, less ex experience in campaigning on militarism and peace building. I'm myself originally from Kiribati and I now reside in Australia. As a person from Kiribati, perhaps that's okay because just like the climate emergency, our discussion of August comes from colonizing, colonizing attitudes, attitudes between peoples. The world's dominating powers just feel my community, my people, my nation, my culture as expandable. As it is for the climate emergency, so too for militarism and conflict. Again, the peoples and cultures of my region are just collateral damage to the greed and cultural narcissism of distant colonizing powers. It's not new. In 1943, we provided the battleground for conflict in the Second World War, the Battle of Tarawa. Fought between Japan and the US was one of the, the bloodiest battles of Fair Pacific War. Although our people did not create that war, many were killed, injured, mistreated, traumatized, and displaced from their homes. Sadly, a few years later, my nation, Kiribati, had a leading role in the development of nuclear weapons, together with other Pacific communities. It was a role we never wanted and to which we never gave our consent. In 1957 and 1958, the British colonizing powers used our Christmas Island for nuclear tests. In 1962, the US needed a new site for their tests. So the British volunteers volunteered a place. Not County Surrey, not Land's End. Rather, the British offered my home to the US and they conducted more nuclear tests, also on Kiribati, Christmas Island. I made a video call with my great uncle and we talked about Kiribati's disregard by colonizing powers and about the Second World War. And my uncle said, and I quote, we can't go back to straighten the past. Our people suffered a lot from colonization, but we can try and stop what is happening now in our world. We are fighting for our very own survival as a result of the climate. Now Australia decided to join August without even thinking of the consequences that our people are going to face and experience in the future. This is inhumanity. Australia's Prime Minister, Scott Morrison, often talks about national borders and security. How about permitting such concerns to the Pacific Islands? Where does our security lie? The Pacific Island nations are very concerned and are fearful of the Australian government's decision. August means 
the expenditure, the expenditure of billions. In my opinion, Australia, the UK the, the, and the US should help the Pacific Islands to provide safe drinking water for our children because infant mortality rates are high due to the lack of clean water. The water problems are aggravated by both drought and rising sea levels caused by the, the emissions of these powerful nations. Their pollution kills our children. And yet they spend their wealth barely to help, but rather on obscene weapons. To me, this decision is a disaster. It is going to create more problems and conflicts, which may lead to war. We don't want war. With New Zealand and Pacific Island nations, Australia is a party to the 1985 Treaty of Rarotonga, which established the South Pacific Nuclear Free Zone, supposedly free of nuclear weapons. How will Australia comply with these under August? On the 23rd of December 2016, the General Assembly of the United Nations adopted a resolution that led just six months later to the Treaty on the Prohibition of Nuclear Weapons, the TPNW. On that day, the General Assembly affirmed that this treaty should be a step towards the elimination of nuclear weapons. I'm very proud that Kiribati, my country, voted with other Pacific nations in favor of this resolution. I note the US voted against, the UK voted against, and Australia voted against. In December 2017, Kiribati was one of the first country to sign the TPNW. And in September 2019, we ratified it. Still today, the US, the UK, and of course, Australia stand in opposition to this UN treaty that lays the pathway forward to eliminate nuclear weapons. August is a further demonstration of this. Shame on them for their lack of leadership and ethics. We need an honest, an honest partnership and a strong, reliable relationship with developed countries like Australia. That relationship means inclusiveness, respect, consultation, dialogue, and morals. In my opinion, August is a, a disaster, not just for the Pacific Island nations, but for the whole world. Before I finish, I want to bless each one of you with my Kiribati traditional blessings, which are the Maori, good health, joy, peace, and prosperity. Thank you and Kampasindaba for this opportunity. Well, that's it for Solidarity Breakfast this week as we finish our last in our summer season and return to panel live. Until next week, keep safe, talk to you soon. Cheers from Annie.